You're listening to The Itch, a podcast exploring all things allergy, asthma, and immunology. I'm your co-host, Courtney, a real-life allergy, asthma, and eczema girl. And I'm your second host, Dr. Payal Gupta, a board-certified allergy, asthma, and immunology doctor. Courtney and I hope to balance each other out so that we get you all the information that you want and need about allergies, asthma, and immunology. This episode is sponsored by Thermo Fisher Scientific and Allergy Insider. If you don't know about Allergy Insider, it's a great resource to learn more about allergies, both environmental and food, asthma and eczema. All of their information is totally comprehensible and really nicely laid out if you're a visual person like me. They also have the That Kid campaign, which sheds light on living with food allergies. You may even see a certain someone highlighted in this campaign. And if I can't get you over to allergyinsider.com for their fabulous information, you might want to check out the video because my puppy makes a cameo. So go check that out and learn everything you need to know about atopic conditions on Allergy Insider. That's www.allergyinsider.com or hit up their Instagram at Allergy Insider for some great facts and beautiful graphics. Today we're diving into a topic that causes a lot of confusion, cross-reactivity and food allergies. Just hearing the term cross-reactivity, I mean what does it even mean? Well, fear not, because we dive into it all with the medical director of Thermo Fisher, Dr. Lakia Wright. Together, we walk through OAS, oral allergy syndrome. Could you be allergic to a food that is cross-reactive to one of your allergens? What tests are available to determine whether it's a true allergen or something like OAS? If I've lost you, if I've confused you, if you're like, oh my gosh, no way, don't worry. I promise it makes so much more sense when Dr. Wright and Dr. G explain it to us. At the end of this conversation, we get into some really cool facts about milk and egg allergies. So for my milk and egg allergic friends, stay to the end. I promise it will be worth it. Are you ready? Let's dive in. Today, we are joined by Dr. Kia Wright, a board-certified allergist and the medical director at Thermal Fisher. Kia is joining us to talk about cross-reactivity since this can mean a lot of things to people with food allergies. Welcome, Kia. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you. I'm really excited to talk about cross-reactivity with both of you today because I feel like this comes up a lot of times in private chats that I have with other food allergy folks, as well as in Facebook groups. And I know that there's a lot of misinformation being spread about these things. And I'm a little bit worried that sometimes it's dangerous because I've seen some things on TikTok, for instance, where cross-reactivity gets into all sorts of crazy land. And especially since it's geared towards younger audience. My question would be, let's just jump off right away. What is cross-reactivity? So cross-reactivity occurs when your body's immune system identifies the proteins in one substance, for example, pollen, and the proteins in another substance, for example, fruit and vegetables, as being similar. So when you come in contact with either, whether it's a protein and something that you're truly allergic to or not, your immune system can react in the same way, which can cause your allergic symptoms. All that matters to your immune system is that the proteins are structurally similar or biologically, you 
know, related and cross-reactivity can occur. And the risk of cross-reactivity, it really needs to be assessed by a healthcare professional. Important foods shouldn't be removed from your diet if you're not having any symptoms without a confirmed diagnosis. So that's why the role of the healthcare provider is so important. So what about cross-reactivity with an IgE-mediated allergen? Because I feel like sometimes I know we've heard about cross-reactivity to pollens, but what about when someone says, oh, I'm allergic to peanut, which means I'm allergic to peas and all legumes. Like, how does that work within the cross-reactivity world? And I think that's where a lot of confusion comes about when I see that online. Yes. So that is such a, a great point because you can talk about cross-reactivity between pollen. So for example, if you were to have spring allergies, you're allergic to tree pollen, including birch pollen, then that can be cross-reactive to like pitted fruits like apples, peaches, plums, or pears. And you can get things like oral allergy syndrome. But then uh, there's another instance in which we talk about uh, cross-reactivity and things being structurally similar when we talk about like foods in general and and what sort of they're related to. So um, you brought up to the point of legumes and peanuts. So we know that peanut is part of the legume family. But if you have a peanut allergy, even though it's a legume, it doesn't mean that you're allergic to all those foods in the legume family. So for example, within the legume family, we have things like lentil, green pea, chickpea. And so those are very structurally similar. So if you're allergic to a lentil, then it's likely that, you, you know, you can be allergic to a green pea, but that doesn't mean that you're absolutely allergic to soy or peanut. And so that's why it's so important to have that conversation with your doctor, document, you know, what foods you have consumed, how frequently you've consumed them, have you had any symptoms? Because these can be structurally related as in the same, you know, sort of family, but the cross-reactivity may not be clinically, you know, sort of relevant meaning you may not have symptoms, but if something is very structurally similar, then that would increase the likelihood of you having symptoms. So that's why it's so important to talk to your healthcare provider and to give your doctor a good history so they can tease that apart and, and tell you what foods are likely, you know, safe and, and which ones should be avoided. So can I ask another question related to that? If we're talking about the peanut and that's an IgE mediated allergy and you might have a possibility of being allergic to something else. And then you talk about something like OAS. Maybe we should define OAS first. And then I would ask about if I'm allergic to birch pollen and then I get an itchy mouth with apples, is that a true allergen? So maybe let's take a step back. And can you tell us a little bit about OAS or also known as pollen food syndrome, I believe? When we talk about OAS, we're talking about oral allergy syndrome. And that term is really applied commonly when you're allergic to pollen. And then you can have some symptoms with fruit and vegetables. And typically, it's uh, you would be having the symptoms to the fresh form of the food. And you can have things like some oral itching, oral itching and even some throat itching and that some people have more symptoms that is less likely for you to develop, you know, more systemic symptoms, but it can happen in about two to three percent of the patients. But these are typically local reactions. So just so I understand correctly, and I think I'm trying to sort this out in my brain because I have a lot of food allergies that are IgE mediated allergens. Then I also have like a whole bunch of foods that I know are OAS. The foods that are IgE mediated 
did are the ones that were, I would call a food allergy, but then the apples, the pears, the plums, I, can I call those a food allergy or do I call those something else because they don't act in my body the same as a food allergen does? Yes. So I think that's a, a very important thing to try to clarify. And I will tell you, it's not absolutely cut and dry. So Typically, we refer to oral allergy syndrome, as I mentioned, with the pollen and cross-reactivity foods such as fruits and vegetables. But more recently, we've in the scientific community, we've relabeled it pollen food allergy syndrome so that we're actually better representing the range of symptoms that can occur. Commonly with oral allergy syndrome, it's those symptoms of oral itching are a result of, for example, your birch allergies sort of manifesting when you can when you eat something like an apple. But there is a small segment of patients that can go on to have more symptoms. And and these are still um, within the realm of, you know, IgE-mediated reactions. But classically, you would think of it as an oral sort of localized reaction. But the risk of it developing into a more systemic reaction is there, albeit very small. So about a 2%. So if you look at epidemiological studies, it's about 2% of the patients can go on to have systemic symptoms. And about, you know, like one to two percent can even go on to have anaphylaxis, anaphylactic shock. So that's why it's, it's more so termed pollen food allergy syndrome to better represent the range of symptoms that can occur. But typically oral symptoms, you know, those are the, the ones that occur more commonly. But it's IgE playing a role, yes. And we can sort of talk about components and I can use the example of sort of peanuts to sort of demonstrate that as well. Yeah, I think that all of those points are really important. And I think not to scare anyone regarding, you know, the very small risk of anaphylaxis. So if you're really, if you don't have a food allergy and so you don't carry around an EpiPen and you have a pollen allergy and then you are, you know, experiencing some symptoms of this kind of oral allergy or the food pollen allergy syndrome, patients will ask me, do I now need to carry around an EpiPen? And really what we need to do, as Kia's mentioned, is the person is obviously coming to me and asking me that as an allergist. And I think that's important for all patients to do is to kind of check in and really we're going to go into the history, figure out what your symptoms are, figure out how severe your symptoms have gotten in the past. And if they seem to be getting progressively worse or if they seem to stay pretty consistent. And one other way, we will definitely talk about the the way that you can kind of differentiate and labs and things like that. But another thing too is that, you know, raw versus cooked is important to keep in mind is that a lot of these pollen food syndrome and not a true allergy to the actual food itself, when you eat it in its cooked version, it's not going to cause symptoms, whereas the raw version will cause symptoms. So that's another way to figure out if it's more of this cross-reactivity issue or if it's an actual true food allergy to the actual fruit itself, if that makes sense. That makes a lot of sense. And since we haven't really fully clarified it, what would the typical symptoms of a cross-reactive allergic reaction look like? So someone who is experiencing oral allergy syndrome to say an apple. So for oral allergy syndrome, 
The reaction would typically have symptoms such as itching in the mouth. Some people can have a little bit of uh, swelling as well, um, you know, in the lip area where either itching and or swelling uh, in the area where the food has not, you know, touched their lips. Some people can also have throat itching or the sensation that they need to sort of clear their throat. Great. Thank you. That that makes a lot more sense now just to have a better idea of what we're talking about, especially for people who have food allergies, because as someone with food allergies and with OAS, or I guess pollen allergy syndrome, I'm not sure what the right term to use now is, both make me like when I eat an apple, it makes me really nervous because it reminds me so much of like some of the early stages of having an allergic reaction to peanut. So I just stay very far away from all the things that I'm allergic to, but I do, or that I'm allergic to OAS wise, but I do eat like applesauce. I do eat the cooked vegetables. uh, And I just like test the water with how cooked is cooked. You know, how cooked does that carrot need to be? Now that we're getting into springtime, I'm curious, can OAS be worse during pollen season? Are there times where it might spike for someone? Yes, that is, that is um, a very good question. And yes, um, you can experience um, an increase in symptoms around uh, pollen season. Uh, and that's because with exposure to the pollen, you can get an increase in your uh, pollen IgE levels. And then as a result of that, you can experience some of those symptoms from the cross-reactivity between the pollen and the food and you can get more symptoms. But I would say that I do tell patients, as you mentioned, uh, Courtney, with you know, the cooked form of the food uh, tends to, or it's less likely that you have any symptoms with it. And and for me, I have oral allergy syndrome with pitted fruits like apples, but I love apples and I love to eat them in the spring. So I even pop them in the microwave for a few seconds because even that amount of heat, the heat from the microwave can denature the protein enough so that you're less likely to experience symptoms. Or you can even peel. I like eating my apples with a peel on, but you can even peel the apple to try to, to uh, decrease your risk of having symptoms. I know that in Germany, they did this study where they, and I'm getting completely off topic. I'm sorry, but I just, I wanted to share this thing because I thought it was interesting. They did this study where they tested like 80 varieties of apples on people who have OAS. And they found that these really old apple varieties actually didn't have any OAS symptoms when people ate them. So I'm wondering, are there different fruits and vegetables, like maybe heirloom carrots or something that don't have the same effect on people? You know, I am not familiar with the literature that like to support if it, if it were like different apples or, you know, different varieties of, you know, like uh, peaches or pears. Typically, we go based on what the patient is experiencing because I'm not familiar with the literature that would say, okay, well, this type of apple would be, you know, potentially worse. But I do know that perhaps there may be more like protein expression. I, I'm not exactly sure as it relates to sort of the skin of, of an apple in different types that might be more of a trigger, but I don't actually know the literature for that. That's okay. I was just throwing a ringer at you. <laughs> yeah, I think it's, I think it is all about as we have different ways that we're genetically modifying trees and all this stuff to create different forms of apples and all these things, there might be people won't experience as many symptoms, but we really can't predict that. So I wouldn't go off of that, but that 
advice that Kia gave about putting Apple in the microwave for a little bit is probably really good advice. Yeah, I remember you telling me that once, Dr. G in private, telling me that I should just zap my apples. And I said, no, maybe this isn't a reason why I should buy a microwave. (laughs) We'll see. I'm very curious because I hear a lot of people develop allergies as they get older. And when I hear anecdotally what's going on, I'm like, oh yeah, that sounds like OAS. Is this something that can show up later in life? Does it show up in kids? When does OAS generally appear in someone's life? Yes. So OAS, typically you would see it in older children. And the reason for that is because typically you would have a development of seasonal allergies first. And then if you have more severe or like moderate severe symptoms with your seasonal allergies, you may be higher risk for developing oral allergy syndrome. And so in children, it actually takes a few years of exposures to the pollens for them to actually develop those sort of allergic rhinitis or, or hay fever symptoms. And then potentially later, and, and I would say in my clinical practice, I see older children like eight or nine or even you know older that develop oral allergy syndrome. I do not see it in very uh, young children. And, and based on the literature, we suspect that is because it takes a few seasons. And typically, patients with OAS or allergy syndrome do have more of like the moderate to severe hay fever symptoms. And then, you know, they're getting the cross-reactivity with the pollen in the, the food. And I will say that as far as adults, it can appear at any time in adulthood, but it tends to correlate with those allergic rhinitis or those hay fever symptoms. It would be very rare to of not have those prominent hay fever symptoms but then have oral allergy syndrome. Okay, that's good to know. I can tell my friends who are like, all of a sudden I can't eat cherries. Courtney, tell me what's going on. And I'm like, friend, I'm not an allergist. <laughs> I'm sorry, I wish I could tell you. So for my friend who's all of a sudden getting itchy mouths from eating some things, how is this diagnosed? How do you diagnose something that is cross-reactive? So it is mainly a clinical diagnosis. So in these patients who have oral allergy syndrome, it's really important that they talk to their doctor about it of their hate. Fever symptoms. What symptoms are you having? Those classic symptoms, runny nose, stuffy nose, watery, itchy eyes. That sort of gives us clues as to, you know, when are these uh, symptoms typically happening and what season? When are they worse? When it comes to spring, we tend to, at least in the, the Northeast US, we tend to think of birch pollen and we see a lot of sensitization to birch. And, and then subsequently, we see oral allergy syndrome in some patients, particularly with those pitted fruits that I mentioned. And then it can also happen with other pollens. Too. So we have things like ragweed and the connection, things like ragweed and bananas can be uh, cross-reactive. Also, we have other weeds like mugworts can have reactions or cross-reactivity between uh, mugwort and uh, spices uh, like mustard, garlic and black pepper, even celery. And so it's good to t- take a good history and to understand what sort of hay fever symptoms patients are having. And then uh, subsequently too, getting the history about, well, what foods are you reacting to? And then trying to make that connection between the pollens uh, in the foods to further investigate it. We want to try to tease apart, is this, are these symptoms localized with oral itching or are there other symptoms going on that are systemic? Like, are you getting hives, right? That is not a classic oral allergy syndrome. You're getting hives with foods. We want to investigate other symptoms too, like gut symptoms, abdominal pain, um, nausea, vomiting. We want to try to determine, are these symptoms localized, like oral allergy syndrome, 
or is there more symptoms that are systemic and then we are more concerned about a primary food allergy as opposed to cross-reactivity? What about nuts? Are nuts cross-reactive to any of the pollens? Yes. So that's a very good question because we tend to think about the pollens with the cross-reactivity with the fruits and vegetables, but you can get cross-reactivity with the nuts as well. And uh, one very sort of common pair with the pollen and uh, tree nut is birch and and hazelnut in that cross-reactivity. So um, you can get those classic oral allergy symptoms, sort of like, you know, oral itching. And that's a pretty common one. So you guys mentioned something about blood tests and peanut. And I know that two years ago, I can't believe this is two years ago, we actually got to see you, Dr. Wright, at the FA BlogCon talk about this. And since we're talking about how this is diagnosed, I would love to know if you could talk a little bit more about the blood testing and how this all comes together. Yes. So when it comes to testing, now when we talk about oral allergy syndrome, we are talking about mainly a clinical diagnosis. Again, you know, what are the classic symptoms? Are they confined to the oral pharynx, the mouth and the the throat? But if there are more systemic symptoms, then we get concerned about primary food allergy. But sometimes it isn't as clear cut. And so that's when you sort of have like a diagnostic dilemma. As a clinician, you want to get as much history as you can and try to put the pieces of the puzzle together. But then also in those great areas uh, where it's unclear, you want to be able to confirm the diagnosis, you can use the testing to help aid in the diagnosis. So when I talk about testing, of course, there's uh, skin testing and blood testing. So if you look at patients who they're sensitized to that allergen, let's use peanut as, as an example, it's showing up on testing. So Sometimes what happens is my patients, they'll come in and they're like, I had a little bit of oral itching, but you know what? I thought that my throat was closing as well. And is that because, you know, they had some itching in their throat, they were clearing their throat. Could there have also been some anxiety? Because if you're about to have an allergic reaction, sometimes it can be sort of unclear. Is this a progression of my symptoms? It, it can just be hard to figure out. And so sometimes in order to figure that out, you may need, need to perform testing to help aid in the diagnosis or confirm the diagnosis. So. When we talk about the whole allergen, uh, you can show up positive, but then what, what are the parts of the whole, uh, what parts of the whole allergen that are you allergic to? Are you allergic to the part that perhaps you would have more localized symptoms and it's more likely that you would have, it may be more consistent with oral allergy syndrome, or is there, you know, potential for more of a systemic uh, reaction? And so we can use peanut as an example. So if you were sensitized to peanut and you wanted to to look at what parts of the peanut and why would you look at the parts? You would look at the parts because you want to figure out, uh, well, what's the likelihood of a systemic reaction? And we know that with a peanut, the storage proteins, those are very stable. They don't sort of change their conformation with like heat or anything. And those are called, uh, as I mentioned, storage proteins. And those are air H1, 2, 3, and uh, 6. And uh, those are associated when you're sensitized to them. Those are associated with a higher risk of a systemic reaction. Whereas if you were sensitized to air H8, which sort of looks like, you know, birch to the body, you are less likely to have a systemic reaction. But that's only if you're monosensitized, meaning you're only sensitized to that and not the storage proteins. And so that can help further aid in the diagnosis, right? Because ultimately, your clinician is helping to decide what is it, is it potentially safe to have this food introduced or reintroduced? 
introduced because the risk of a systemic reaction is low or is that risk higher? And you can use the testing to help aid in the diagnosis and help make that determination. For example, I had a patient and my patient was rather young. He was only three years old and he had been eating peanut butter on a regular basis. One day he ate a peanut butter sandwich and then also climbed in a tree and it was the springtime. And so he had some facial swelling. I mean, you know, at three, they can't really articulate so well. You know, some three-year-olds can tell you I'm having a lot of itching. While others, you know, they may just you sort of scratch at their throat. And then we did a component testing on this patient and he was monosensitized to air H8. And so we thought, well, you know what? It may be that there's some cross-reactivity going on here. And he did not have sensitization to the storage protein. So we decided to go ahead and challenge him. And he was at this time probably about three going on four because you definitely want to challenge children when they can communicate a little bit better with you. And so he passed the challenge. And we see in clinical studies that patients who have a peanut sensitization but only sensitized to air H3 without those storage proteins that I mentioned can tolerate things like peanut butter. But perhaps if they were to eat something like peanuts in a shell, you know, sort of like this uh, fresh form, that they, they may have some oral itching and the clinical studies demonstrate that. So basically, Kia told us a lot of information about what the blood test does. And I think to simplify it a little bit, essentially, there are a lot of proteins in all the food that we eat. And what we figured out is that certain proteins are the proteins that cause systemic reactions or cause allergic reactions. And certain proteins might make your skin prick test positive, but that you won't actually have a reaction when you eat the food that you're not going to have as much predisposition of having an anaphylactic reaction. So essentially when we do the blood test, we look at all of those key proteins proteins. And we know that, like Kia said, the the storage proteins are the ones that we have to be more worried about. And if people are positive to those ones, that we have to be more worried that they're going to have a reaction and that it's going to be more severe. Whereas if they're not positive to those, but they're positive to the other proteins that are in peanut, then we don't have to be as worried. And we can do then a challenge in the office if we still have any concern and we can do a challenge in the office to kind of reassure everybody just to make sure that that is truly what's going on. Yeah, that makes sense. So if I can just kind of put it into a situation, tell me if this is when you would use this type of testing. So say we have a child who's at an age where they can focalize and maybe three or uh, four or five, and they've had an allergic reaction to peanut and they haven't eaten other nuts yet, or maybe they haven't eaten like chickpeas and peas yet, but you know that they have had a systemic reaction to peanuts. This one, you would use this type of blood test to say, we can do the test and then we can decide whether we need to do an oral challenge at the doctor's office or whether you can just go ahead and introduce your kid to these things that also have a similarity. With peanut in the component testing, it's more when you have that diagnostic sort of dilemma. It's typically they've had peanut and you're not sure they actually reacted to the peanut. Sometimes kids are eating sort of multiple things at once. And then you can use the testing to sort of help clarify, do a profile if they have any sensitization to peanut, then it would show up on the testing. What type of sensitization is it? Is it in the lower risk category with H8 or is it higher risk with those storage proteins? But then it's meant for specifically peanut to decide on whether or not they're reacting to peanut. But then if they can tolerate other foods, you would sort of have to do the history for that. Have they 
tolerated before. Some people may choose to do, or typically they would do separate testing to sort of address that. And that can be a little bit controversial because typically you, when you look at testing, that's looking at sensitization patterns, but then a positive test, an IG level doesn't equate with necessarily having an allergy because there's sensitization, meaning the IG is there, but then true allergy is when you have the evidence of the IG being there, but then you actually also have symptoms. And so that's where it gets a little bit tricky with testing and uh, patients haven't had uh, the food yet. And so it's sort of a delicate balance because sensitization of positive test means the IG is there, but the clinical allergy is when the IG is there, but then you're also having, you know, a reaction to the food. The, the best example for personally, when I use component testing is if somebody was little, had like Kia said, had a reaction to a food, we're not sure what they reacted to, but then the primary care doctor, for example, sent an entire food panel and a bunch of things came up positive. And so then the child has not been eating any of those foods. And then what ends up happening is, so it looked like they were sensitized to a bunch of things on the blood test. Then I do the skin test and let's say peanut comes up positive, but the person has had peanut randomly and things and doesn't seem to react, but the parent is still avoiding it. But it looks like on skin testing and on the blood testing, maybe it looks like they're, they might be positive. Then that's where the component testing is helpful to kind of give us even more confidence to then go ahead and reintroduce that food. So if that component testing then differentiates between sensitization and possibly a true allergy. Is that right, Kia? Am I explaining it in the right way? Because that's how I use it clinically. Yeah. It's, um, when you, you wanted to determine what is the, the likelihood of systemic reaction, which is those who are high risk when they're sensitized to those storage proteins that I mentioned, you're going to be very cautious. You're likely to tell the patient to avoid it depending on, you know, sort of their clinical history. But if they're just sensitized to only the part, just error H8, an example of peanut, that's more likely that they could potentially have local symptoms, but less likely to have systemic symptoms. Then those are the patients that, you know, they would have a positive test for whole allergen and you're trying to dig a little deeper to say, well, what part of it? And then what is the likelihood of a systemic reaction? And we use the example of peanut, but then also, you know, we can use the example of tree nuts when uh, you have positive testing because of some of these issues with, you know, cross-reactivity and sort of, you know, these plants or tree nuts uh, being uh, similar, we can look at the profile of meaning what proteins the patient sensitized to. And then we can use that information to help decide is this a patient is at risk uh, for anaphylaxis uh, or systemic reaction, I should say. So would that be in the case of, you said that I think it was hazelnut is cross-reactive to one of the pollens. And would that be the case if someone's coming in and they're like, I get an itchy mouth with hazelnut, but I'm not sure if I'm allergic. Is that when you would use a component testing? Yes. So hazelnut is a very good example as well, because if you were to test that person, for example, they have birch allergy, they have lots of symptoms in the spring. Um, they, like you 
said, Courtney, they're eating. He's not, he said, you know, I have a little bit of itching, but I'm not sure if I have, you know, more symptoms. I'm not sure if, if I'm truly having throat symptoms or, you know, I potentially think I may have. Um, then that kid poses more of a diagnostic dilemma. And then that way you can do the component testing. And, and for hazelnut, Cora A1, less likely that the patient would have a systemic reaction, whereas Cora A9, more likely that the patient would have a systemic reaction. So if they have Cora A1, it's more likely they would just have localized symptoms like oral allergy symptoms, less likely to have a systemic reaction, then that can help put their history in context and really help you to assess sort of their risk. And then you can, you know, of course, the gold standard for evaluating a food allergy would be a challenge. But we want to determine, well, what's the safest way to get to a challenge? And of course, the patient's history is always paramount, but you're collecting different sort of data points with skin testing to the whole allergen, blood testing to the whole allergen, and then component testing where it's available and helping to put sort of all that data together so that you can safely arrive at a diagnosis. Because of course, you don't want to challenge patients that you think they would have a, a severe a systemic reaction or anaphylaxis, but then you don't want to hold patients back if you think that they could safely consume a food. So it's, it's that you're using sort of, you know, of course, the patient's history is guiding this all, but it's, it's like you're using different data points with the testing to help aid in the diagnosis. That's great. You know, I think, and I don't know if this is possible for almonds, but I think that's what happens happened with me because I did blood testing, I did skin prick, all of this other stuff. And then something, something, something didn't understand it. It was also in German. And they were like, yeah, let's, let's try oral challenging you with almonds. And then I passed and I just get like a tiny bit of itchy mouth, but they called it a pass. And I think that's what happened because I went through a massive amount of testing and then did a bunch of oral challenges. And I think this is exactly the route that my doctors took. Yeah. So basically, yes. Courtney, if you had gone to somebody that doesn't do component testing, they would have said, oh my God, you're positive. You have to avoid almonds. And so, you know, your skin test was probably positive. Your blood test was positive, but then you might've had like a couple instances where you were like, but I think something that I ate did have almonds in it. So I don't know if I'm truly allergic. That's where the component testing is perfect. Cause then you look at the component testing and you say, oh, it's most likely because she has so many pollen allergies and there's similar protein and she's not actually truly allergic to the protein in the almond that we have to worry about. That's when they were okay with you eating it. And lo and behold, you only have the itching in your mouth. So it is an oral allergy and the pollen allergy, food allergy syndrome versus a true allergy to the actual almond. That's really exciting for a lot of people to hear if they have like this massive tree nut list. And they're like, I've got to be able to knock off one of these, right? And so maybe this is a discussion they can have with their doctor is go, well, I know I have a birch pollen allergy and I know that I've had like a peanut allergy. But does it mean that I have to avoid all of these tree nuts? Is there a way that we can try and figure out if I can do an oral challenge? Because I know that was the conversation I had with my allergist when I went in and I was like, I've got to get some food back. I'm, I'm determined that there's going to be at least one thing I can eat. So that's how I went at it. I am curious though about egg. So I know that there are people who can eat cooked egg, but not raw egg. Is this also something that you could test for? Yes. So there is component testing available for egg. And I will say in the United States, we have component testing available for some foods. So we have milk, egg, peanut, and some tree nuts. 
So we have hazelnuts, walnuts, Brazil nuts, and cashew. But in Europe, their offerings are a little different and, and more expansive. And But I will say with egg, we do have the components for uh, over mucoid and over albumin. So looking at uh, those components, it can help you determine if the patient may be able to tolerate big egg. And that's because with the over mucoid, it can be less heat resistant. It tends to, to sort of maintain its structure and, and can rev up the immune system, whereas over albumin is more likely to be degraded with the heat. It's more heat labile. And so if you're cooking foods at 350 degrees or higher, then, uh, you know, you're less likely to have sensitization to that to actually have a reaction because the protein is denatured. But then there's difference between sort of baking things and then cooking it on a stovetop or having it raw because then it's more in its sort of like non-denatured form and can really, you know, rev up the immune system. So you can use component testing to help evaluate in addition to clinical history, of course, and helping to evaluate if someone can tolerate the baked form. And when I say baked, I mean, in an oven, 350 degrees or more. And typically the timing, I used to say 20 minutes, but cookies, cookies, you put cookies in for 10 to 15 minutes. And I have had patients tolerate that as a, baked, a form of food with baked egg in the setting of an egg allergy, but able to tolerate baked egg. And we see that patients this size to egg about 70 Five percent of them, based on clinical studies, uh, can tolerate it in its baked form. Wow, that's really exciting! So, if someone has an egg allergy, they should basically see if they can have baked eggs, so they can add all the cakes into their lives. <laughs> yes, they should get that. Yes, it's very important uh, to speak with an allergist to help determine, based on your clinical history, the testing can help sort of aid in that diagnosis and, and then determine if you are potentially a candidate for something like a baked egg challenge. And most people who are sensitized can actually tolerate, not everyone, but most can tolerate baked egg. But of course, it would need to be under the supervision of an allergist. And what about milk? Is there anything like that with milk? Because you said milk was one other component test that was available? Yes. So there is component testing for milk. And so we see patients that have high Ig levels to uh, casein, you know, may, it may be an indicator of uh, persistent, you know, milk allergy. But then there are also so other milk proteins like lactic albumin, and you can help, you can use those test findings to help assess whether the patient can tolerate the baked form of milk. And in clinical studies, about 70% of the patients who are sensitized to milk can actually tolerate baked milk. But again, you need to get a good clinical history. The testing helps to aid in that diagnosis within the ultimate, you know, the ultimate testing would be that oral food challenge. My mind is a little bit blown right now because those numbers are super high, like 75 and 70%. How would you start if you have an egg or a milk allergy and you're like me, maybe I don't have either, but say I did and I was, you know, my age of 32 and 70% sounds really high. How do I start that conversation with my allergist? I want to know if I can have this allergen cooked. Yes. And so um, we make that distinction between like bake and like cooking versus a uh, stovetop. It's, it's really when it's baked at that high temperature that the protein is denatured and that sort of may be enough 
for your body to that denaturing that 350 degrees for at least 20 minutes or more, perhaps 15, but it needs to be baked at that high temperature to denature the protein and your body may be able to tolerate it. I would say that, you know, with anything, you have to go to your allergist and give just the basics of your history. You know, have you had any accidental exposures to things like, you know, uh, baked milk? Because that can tell us a lot too. Again, uh, the clinical history, you know, when you were diagnosed, have you ever had any challenges to baked milk um, in the past? And, and if so, what happened? What testing have you had in the past? You can use both skin testing and blood testing. In addition, you know, we have the, to that whole allergen testing in both uh, blood and skin testing. Then there's the molecular testing, just blood testing, putting all those data points together in the context of the patient's clinical history can help your allergist arrive at, you know, whether or not you would be a good candidate for a baked milk challenge. So I think it, it starts first with the, the history and then really asking your allergist, do you think that I could be a candidate for a, a baked milk challenge? That's really great. That's so amazing to hear. It's amazing how much more we know about these proteins and how much we can really pinpoint things nowadays. Dr. G, do you have anything else to say in regards to this type of component testing? I do feel like this has clarified so much for me about what the heck cross-reactivity is, OAS, and then also this whole different types of almonds can be an allergy, but it can also be an OAS. And this is why this testing is really important. I feel like I've been mind blown, if you can say that. My mind has been blown. But anything else that um, you feel like our audience should know about this? She has done a really amazing job of really outlining everything. And I think it might feel a little bit confusing if it's new to you. But I think what we can do is share, number one, a list of the foods that are available to get tested via component testing in the United States. Number two, all of the different components for each of the the different proteins for the foods. We'll also put out a list for that so that it's easier to follow along when, when we're talking about each of these things to differentiate between the storage proteins and between the other proteins. And then I think at the end of the day, it really is about a conversation. And this test isn't, it's not for everybody. It's for certain situations. If you're having anaphylactic reactions to a food, you don't need to get a component test because we know that you're likely positive to those storage proteins. And there's nothing that's going to change our mind if you've had the food recently and you're having anaphylactic reactions. This test really helps in those moments where you're confused and where you're trying to figure out, is it an almond allergy or is it just because this person has a lot of pollen allergies and might be having more of that food pollen allergy syndrome? Is there a list of pollens and what things you might have cross-reactive reactions to? There are some common pairs with, you know, birch, mugwort, and ragweed. We could share some of those sort of educational resources as well. Yeah, that sounds like it might be a good starting point for someone who is curious whether it is just this oral allergy syndrome or if it is an actual allergy. So I will definitely make sure we link to that. Just to close out, because I know that we're actually going to be having Dr. Wright back with us and we're going to be doing some myth busting, which is going to be fun, just so that I know what I'm saying when I go forward. Can I use OAS? Can I use oral allergy syndrome? Or should I now be saying pollen food syndrome? I think more people will probably know what you're talking about if you, if you say oral allergy syndrome, 
but because it can be a spectrum, but for sure, the most common is those symptoms that are in the oral pharynx to the mouth and the throat symptoms that are limited to, to that region. So I think it's it's totally fine to say oral allergy syndrome. But you might see in sort of the clinical and the scientific literature now more, the pollen food allergy syndrome, um, just so that we can sort of better characterize the, the range of symptoms. But I think you're totally fine if you use oral allergy syndrome because that captures the most common symptoms. So I think that's appropriate. Awesome. Thank you. Because I feel like PFAS might be a little bit of a mouthful. <laughs> yes, I totally agree. It's a, a mouthful. And every time I say it, I have to pause so that I make sure that I'm saying it correctly. Thank you so much for joining us. And thank you so much for blowing our minds or my mind, at least. Hopefully our milk and egg friends will have heard this and maybe have a conversation with their allergist. Well, thank you. Thank you to both of you guys for having me. This is fun. Same. Thank you so much. Before you go, one more thing. If you want more information about oral allergy syndrome, component testing, or to see what foods cross-react with your pollen allergies, check out Allergy Insider. It's www.allergyinsider.com. They have all the information you need to learn more about what we talked about today on this episode. And check out their Instagram at Allergy Insider for some beautiful graphics and fun allergy facts. Thanks again for listening. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Remember that all information you hear today is for informational purposes only and are not intended to serve as a substitute for the consultation, diagnosis, and or medical treatment of a qualified physician or healthcare provider. And also, don't forget to subscribe to our podcast. And if you have a second, help spread the word by rating our podcast and sharing with your friends and family who might also be interested in learning more about allergies, asthma, and immunology. You can always stay up to date by checking out our Instagram, The Itch Podcast, where you can leave questions you are itching to know, or check out our website, which is www itchpodcast.com, which contains more information about the subjects we covered in today's episode and every episode. Until next time, have a fabulous week.